Lights, and you're listening to P.S. Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's another edition of P.F.'s third favorite band. This time, it's the Ocean Blue. So, we're going to start, of course, with uh, two songs from my first two favorite bands, uh, the Beach Boys and Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. And for both bands, we've arrived at uh, an interesting point in their careers. With the Beach Boys, we left off with 15 big ones from 1976. Uh, I guess people would find that maybe a mistitled album. Uh, many people at the time, because their big, big greatest hits package, Endless Summer, was out, and people confused 15 big ones with Endless Summer, thinking, oh, 15 big ones must be their 15 biggest hits. Nope! does have a top 10 hit in it with a cover of rock and roll music by Chuck Berry, but no, it is not a greatest hits album. But as we discussed, still a fine album uh, in many respects. And I still like a lot, and a lot of Beach Boy fans don't. So we come up to, it's 1977, uh, Brian is back. He uh, is going to release a solo album, but then decides to use the songs uh, for a Beach Boys album, and then the rest of the Beach Boys kind of chip in on a lot of the songs. So all the songs he's written, there's a lot of co-writing credits on him. And the album that comes out is called Love You. And boy, I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago when I was kind of doing more research into the Beach Boys. My wife bought me this magazine for my 50th birthday, and it was, uh, I I can't remember who publishes it. It's one of the big music magazines in Britain, and they do, uh, they have these artist magazines, and she bought me the Beach Boys one, and it goes through album by album and all their solo stuff. And uh, it has all interviews from the Music Express and Melody Maker from like the 60s onward. So anyway, uh, come to discover that people love the album Love You, which baffles me. In fact, reading that magazine, I'm probably the exact opposite of all the Beach Boys critics on this. The the stuff the critics love, except for Pet Sounds, that's the only thing we're on the same page on, and possibly all summer long. Uh, I think the exact opposite of every Beach Boys critic. So people hate 15 big ones. I like it a lot. Uh, people love Love You. I am not a stan, and I've been listening to this for the past week in preparation of this episode, thinking, well, maybe, what am I missing? So, two things you should know about Love You. It uses a lot of keyboards, moogs and stuff, which you think, well, P.F., that's straight in your basket. The Beach Boys doing what's essentially an early synth-pop album? Fantastic. But the problem is, there aren't any tunes, man. Even though Brian wrote all these, there's a couple. I mean, I went through and finally found, I narrowed it down to two. I finally decided to go with Mona, uh, which I think the lead lead vocal by uh, Dennis Wilson, whose voice is very rough at this point. But, uh, I mean, I I like the fact that it's a lot of moogs. It's very sparse. It isn't a lot of bands at the time of the Beach Boys peers, some of the bigger bands, they're using moogs, but they're using the big... uh the ones that are, it's, we'll explain this when I do the next series of PF's tape recorder, the history of synth pop. Stay tuned. But they're using modular synth, these bands, and they're these huge, complex keyboards, where I believe on this album, the Beach Boys are using like mini Moogs and some of the smaller ones that are starting to become available at this time. So the arrangements are really sparse, which is really cool, which is what really good synth pop is all about. But again, I just don't like any of the songs on this album. But I'm going to play one for you here. Uh, This is a song called Mona. And like I said, I believe lead vocals by Dennis Wilson. And here it is. Glad that you found me. Do 
Mona from the Beach Boys Love You. And again, researching this album, people love this album. Peter Buck calls this, of R.E.M., calls this his favorite Beach Boys album. Apparently, this is a, a blueprint for a lot of uh, indie rock today, even though a lot of indie rock doesn't involve a lot of keyboards and synthesizers. Uh, they like kind of the punk feel to it. And yes, it does, again, it got the sparse arrangements. The Beach Boys we have the attitude, we're going to just do whatever we want. I, I guess they had that attitude at this point because even though they had some financial problems early in the 70s, uh, now that Endless Summer is selling really well, and they've had a top 10 hit off of their last studio album, they figure, well, I, you know, the bank account's filling back up. The the touring act is doing very, very well. They figure, well, act, we'll just, we will make the album we want to make, and uh, mostly the best of Brian, and they do, and people really dig it, and I don't. But uh, I'll, I'm going to keep listening. Maybe maybe it'll it'll take. We'll discuss this album more uh, during the history of synth pop. We come up to orchestral maneuvers in the dark again. Another interesting point in their career. We left off with dreaming. They just released the best of OMD, which does really well. Uh, it sells well in North America. It sells well around the world, of course, because people love the OMD hits. And uh, they come back to England, and uh, they've just finished touring with Depeche Mode, uh, sort of uh, humblingly, as Andy McCluskey told me, because uh, Depeche Mode starts primarily because uh, they hear a lot of early synth pop in the 80s in London. One of the songs they hear that inspires them is Electricity by OMD. OMD ends up being their opening act for a huge worldwide tour, and as Andy told me, uh, the Peshmode's making enough to retire, and we're not making, we're just making enough money to pay our bills. And so they uh, arrive back in England, and I remember this kind of, the first time I ever interviewed Andy McCluskey, he, I was shocked when he told me this. He said, we arrived back in Liverpool absolutely penniless. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, we were absolutely broke. And I'm like, how can that be the best of OMD? They've, the only place they haven't really sold records a lot in the 80s, even though they did sell records in the 80s here, was everywhere else in the world. So anyway, what happens is they get back to Liverpool. They start working on a new album. And uh, the two main songwriters, forces in the group, of course, uh, are Paul Humphreys and Annie McCluskey. Um, Martin Cooper has been a full member for years. Malcolm Holmes, drummer, full member for years. The Ware Brothers, I believe... I don't know if they leave at this point. They're full members as of the Pacific Age. I think they might have left at this point. But still, there's four of them in the band as full members. And Paul and Martin and Mal think they should be going back to their more electronic-y roots, which is just the stuff that has done well for them in England and Europe and everywhere else except North America. And Andy's like, no, we got to be more dreaming if you leave because that's what's selling in North America, and that's the biggest market. And so, um, as he told me, uh, you know, the, uh, two of us couldn't agree how the hell we're four of us going to agree, so a lot of dissension starts to take place, and they decide that they're sick of each other, and uh, they decide that they're going to stop working together, and there used to be on YouTube this thing, and they've taken it down, unfortunately. I guess it was on in the 90s or 2000s on British TV. It was called The Brief History of the 80s, and they interviewed bands from the 80s, like little 15-minute mini-documentaries, and one of them was with OMD, and I remember Andy explaining that uh, what happened at this point was the other three came to him, that would be Paul, Mallon, Martin, and said, look, we uh, believe there's still value in the name OMD, and we want you to leave, and we were, go we were going to take the name with us. And Andy says, over my dead body. <laughs> so he gets to keep the name, but he also assumes all of the debt the band is in, 
and the other three walk away uh, without the name but not owing any money. And then, uh, so Andy hires a new uh, accountant and manager, and the accountant decides, well, let's just let's just go through the books and see what's going on. Well, it turns out that not only is the band penniless, they are owed uh, quite a bit of money in lost royalties, uh, largely from CD sales that were never counted. CDs come out in 19, what, 84 or 5. So all those sales that they had on all their albums, the, the ones that came out before and were re-released on CD, the ones that come out after CDs are invented and are issued on CD originally, none of those sales are counted, and all that money is now owed to, to mostly to Paul and Andy. And uh, also, I think it's really weird that they're, even without that, it still shocked me that they were penniless, having sold all, so many records all around the rest of the world. But anyway, so it's a huge windfall for uh, the band. Andy uh, signs a new contract with the Virgin. He releases the album Sugar Tax, which we're going to discuss in a second here. And then Martin, uh, Paul, and Mal go on to form a group called The Listening Pool, but they're not allowed to release an album until Andy releases his. And then Andy releases Sugar Tax, and it is an amazing album. I forgot how much I like this album. When I was on my friend Pat Francis's show uh, two summers ago, uh, we did a show called UFOMD, and it was Pat's idea. We were trying to figure out a show we could do if I came out to California, and his second favorite group is UFO, after Cheap Trick. My second favorite band is OMD. And he came up with the idea, we should do UFOMD and kind of talk about our two favorite, our second favorite bands that people don't know a lot about in both cases. And I'm like, great, although Pat reminded me, I remember said during the beginning of the episode, you can look it up, it's Rock Solid, is Pat's podcast. He said, uh, people probably know your band more than they know my band, but and that's probably true, solely based on if you leave, I would think. But anyway, so Sugar Tax comes out, and oh, my point is, before I did Pat's show, of course, I went and listened to all the albums from, you know, uh, the first one all the way through the whole catalog. And when I got to Sugar Tax, I'm like, well, I forgot how much I love this album. So anyway... Uh, um, so what's the big uh, the big singles from this album are uh, Sailing on the Seven Seas becomes a top five hit in Britain. Um, you see Pandora's Box is another single. It doesn't do as well, but it's uh, it gets a little airplay here in the U.S. Even though it doesn't crack does not crack the Hot 100. But I'm going to play for you uh, one of the album tracks, which should have been a single, and it's a con- it's a song called, excuse me called Speed of Light. Here it is.
it takes a little adjustment, of course. You have to get used to that it's just Andy. Uh, there's a concert on YouTube where they're uh, playing in South Africa. Uh, they do a lot of this album. Uh, I think it's actually from the the tour is actually from the following album, but they do a lot of songs from this album and only a couple songs from the following album, Liberator. And it's really weird to hear Andy say, "We wrote this song in 1979." I'm like, no, you wrote this song with Paul. Nobody else is there from the band. It's these, these other dudes. Uh, the one dude in the band eventually becomes the drummer uh, permanently in OMD, and I ex- I'll explain that down the road when we get to it. But there you have it, my uh, two first favorite bands. Of course, uh, Beach Boys and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Let's go on to the Ocean Blue. The Ocean Blue are formed in, I think, in 1986, 87-ish in Hershey, PA, by high school students uh, led by Dave Schultzel. Uh, the other fellows in the band it would be Steve Lau, Rob Minning, and Bobby Matan. And uh, they're, of course, yes, I guess they're from Hershey, PA. They get a record contract and release an album in 1989, uh, self-titled. It's called The Ocean Blue. And Young PF is in radio at this point, uh, gets his first radio job. Unfortunately, uh, the guy that owns the station isn't keen on paying us. Uh, the guy that hires me has convinced him to go from an oldies format, like oldies back then meaning 50s and 60s, to um, an alternative rock format. And he's like, well, if I don't have to pay you, I don't care what the hell you do. Just keep my station on the air. So he, he hit the, my boss's payment is uh, his car payment. So the owner of the station will pay my boss's car payment, and that's it. He will occasionally pay the rest of the air staff, including me. And But anyway, it ended up being a lot of fun for six months. And um, one of the groups that was one of our most popular in the playlist for the whole summer was the Ocean Blue. But weirdly, um, this is a fantastic debut album, by the way. There are two singles from it, and they are, and you might remember them from way back in 1989, um, Drifting Falling. Wait, Drifting Falling is the second album. What is the name of the first? I've, I've, I've totally blanked on what the first single was from this album. Um, Drifting Falling was the first one. Between Something and Nothing, I'm sorry, is the first single. And they do great. And I like them a lot, but I really like this other track a lot more. And I'm surprised it wasn't the third single. It's called Vanity Fair. And the whole album, again, is great. Office of a Busy Man, uh, um, the Winter Song. There's all, all, all kinds of great tracks on here. Uh, Frigid Winter Days, that's in the Winter Song. Um, every track on here is great. There, there's no speed bumps, nothing to skip. But like I said, this is my favorite track from the album, surprisingly not a single, this is Vanity Fair.
you can kind of tell they uh, are running around in interviews saying that they're very influenced by you know not only American uh, alternative acts like of the time like REM the big ones of course uh, but of course Echo and the Bunnymen and the Smiths and all that and probably more influenced by the British than by the Americans but still they come up with a, what's a very ocean blue sound to this day as you're going to hear as we go through the songs and that album does really well. They become very popular. Uh, they release an album after that called Cerulean, and not a sophomore slump, as a matter of fact. It is a very great album, a lot of great songs on this one. Uh, Ballerina Out of Control, probably the big single. Mercury is a great tune. Question of Travel is a great tune. But I'm going to play the title track because I think this is the most ocean bluey of ocean blue songs, right down to the title. Uh, the title Cerulean. Cerulean, of course, is a shade of blue. And uh, I interviewed Dave Schultz at the time that this came out. And he explained to me that his mom had given him a word of the day calendar, and cerulean was one of the words that came up one day, and he just liked it, and it blew, so if you're ocean blue, and it just fit, and you wrote a song, and this, well, this is it, this is cerulean. title track of the Ocean Blues album from the same name. I think we're talking 1991 for this album. And uh, they they tour this. They're uh, <clears throat> still popular, but as we've discussed with other bands, what's happened at this point, of course, is what's going on. Of course, in, in England, we have the Manchester scene. And in the United States, we have Seattle is about to explode, uh, neither of which bodes well for uh, keyboard groups like we discussed last week with Book of Love and Information Society and Cause and Effect and all those bands and, you know, jingly jangly pop bands like the Ocean Blue. People are starting to lose their patience for these kind of bands. Uh, nonetheless, they soldier on and turn out uh, what turns out to be my favorite album of theirs, their third album, Beneath the Rhythm and Sound. The big single from this is Crash, gets a lot of radio play. And the song Sublime, which is probably one of my favorite songs ever. And boy, it's just from top to bottom. Uh, Great melody, great chorus, great hook, uh, great bridge. Always important in a, in a pop song is to have a great bridge. And uh, this is Sublime. Just 
other great tracks from this album either or ice skating at night but again this album does not do very well because they are smack up against seattle in this at this point in their careers i remember by the time i'm working at a record store here in cincinnati uh, this album was already a cutout remember those it had a little notch in it meaning you could buy for like 350 or four bucks or whatever it was which is just a, a shame um that album is worth a lot more but uh again they they sold drawn um all, they lose their Sire record contract, or it was a three-album deal, and Sire decides not to renew. Understandably, even though the Ocean Blue are great, you know, I although you would think Sire would have been more forward-thinking and thought, well, just because you don't have a Seattle sound to you, and thank God they didn't try to force one, uh, they are released from their Sire record contract. Uh, they signed with Mercury Records and released an album called See the Ocean Blue, which has a nice tune on it called Bitter. I don't really listen to this album a lot, so I don't remember what some of the other tracks on it are. But uh, this fits right in with the rest of their sound. It's a little rockier, but it's not them trying to be Seattle or anything. The song is uh, Bitter from the Ocean Blue. Bitter, what I believe happens is the uh, band kind of like starts to, uh, well, they added a guy named uh, Owen Ron. Let me see how you pronounce it. He's an oddly pronounced first name. Owen Ron. He joins the band as a fifth member, but then uh, I believe Steve Lau leaves. Steve Lau, I think, leaves after Beneath the Rhythm and Sound to start a record label. And then Rob Minning leaves at some point as well. And then we get a new lineup. Uh, but Bobby Matan uh, is still in the group. Uh, they release an EP called Waterworks, but I think at this point, uh, everybody is doing something different. Uh, Dave Schultzel goes on to become an attorney, and he currently lives in Minneapolis, and his specialty is entertainment law and, I think, trademark and copyright law. So anyway, but they're still, you know, doing the Ocean Blue thing. They release, uh, I believe to be Davy Jones' Locker comes out in 1999, if I am not mistaken. Let me see if I got my timeline correct here. Uh, no, Waterworks EP comes out that I have on here, which I think I am incorrect on. I think Davy Jones' Locker comes out. Next, yes. So Dave Jones' Locker comes out. Uh, some nice tracks on here. Um, there's a song, Denmark is on this album. That's nice. Uh, this is a song called Ein and very ocean bluey. It's, it's still their sound, but it's still, it still sounds good to me. And this is Ein from the album Dave Jones' Locker, Ocean Blue.
So after Davy Jones' Locker, I believe we get the Waterworks EP, later expanded in 2014 to a full album. Uh, Owen Ron does a song on here, he writes called Wyoming. Sounds very ocean bluey. Um, Dave Schultz does the lead vocals on this. Owen Rowan does the lead vocals on another song he wrote called Behind. And uh, it's a good tune. Uh, we're going to skip up, though, to... Well, we're at the end here. We're already at our sixth song. How about that? Uh, their last album... Let me see. Did I miss any other albums? They have one other album, but Ultramarine uh, is released in 2013. And that's a pretty good album, too. Uh, these later albums, the uh, production sounds a little more sparse. I'm not sure why. They're produced by the band, and I guess it kind of it kind of almost gives kind of a punky feel to it in a way. But uh, they're they're a good album. Not a bad album really in the lot. Uh, but of course, you know, I kind of I guess I guess I kind of tend to like the earlier albums more, and then you know, select tracks from later albums. They come out in 2019 with an album called Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. Uh, title track is very good. There's also a song on here called Paraguay, which is what we're gonna uh, uh, leave the ocean blue on. And Paraguay, I guess uh, the title probably has something to do with the fact that they are one of these American bands that is uh, weirdly huge in South America, along with people like Information Society and all kinds of bands. You know, people the old joke was, oh, they're big in Japan. A lot of American bands are big in South America that you wouldn't expect to be big in South America. In fact, I think when they did one of their reunion tours with the classic lineup in the 20 teens, uh, the Steve Lau and um, and uh, Bobby Matan and uh, Dave, of course, Dave Schultzel. And uh, they all uh, toured uh, South America together because they'd always done really well there. And um, did the successful tour at that time as well. So anyway, the song is Paraguay. It should have been uh, probably the lead single from this album. Uh, Just good old ocean blue. Here it is, Paraguay. The Ocean Blue. Always forget how much I like these guys. That's just been nice about doing this little exercise here, as I get to kind of revisit some bands and be like, oh yeah, we should go back and really do a deep dive on their catalog. Um, so, still making albums, so that's a plus. Still making good albums. Uh, these guys should probably finish a lot higher than I originally thought, because you got those first three albums that are just completely solid top to bottom. Then you got really still good albums after that. There's still a lot of worthy stuff on the, the rest of the catalog. Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves is, is pretty good. Good tunes on there. So, uh, yeah, Ocean Blue, PF's third favorite band. Hmm, I might have to think this over. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the uh, tournament favorite might be a little nervous at this point, because, um, I don't know, I'm starting to... Uh, get a little more energy for Ocean Blue being the third favorite band. All right, so we've come to uh, our honorable mention band. Honorable mention band is Flock of Seagulls. And boy, do I have some opinions on Flock of Seagulls. First of all, um, remembered mostly for Iran, which was their only top ten hit in the United States, and people think, well, that they're a one-hit wonder. Well, if you're going by only top ten hits in the U.S., well, then yes, then they technically qualify as a one-hit wonder. Uh, unfortunately, for the one-hit wonder crowd, uh, Ocean, uh, Ocean Blue, Flock of Seagulls have uh, at least five top 40 hits 
in the United States. Uh, and they have so many other great songs. They're really kind of upset with people when they kind of, you know, shuffle them into the, oh, one hit wonder thing. In fact, there was a club here in town that uh, they were playing. This was like uh, just, just two years ago. And the little thing they posted is, oh, one of the most notorious one hit wonder bands of the 80s. And people under the comments were like, first of all, why would you say that? Yeah, let's go hear one song by a band. That'll get people in the doors. And secondly, the rest of the people were like me saying, uh, excuse me, one hit? And they listed all the other great songs, which was fantastic. So anyway, um, for a long time, my favorite song by these guys was Space Age Love Song, which was their second biggest hit in the U.S. Got to like 20-odd in the charts. But I've uh, since had a change of heart and and uh, now my favorite Flock of Seagull song is Wishing, largely due to the fact that I bought the uh, greatest hits years and years ago, and there was a nine-minute version of Wishing. And you can think, nine minutes of Wishing, a, a song based on three notes, is, is going to be a great song. Yes, it's fantastic. Nine minutes of Wishing, trust me. It is brilliant. And even people that don't like uh, Flock of Seagulls uh, will back me up on this. But anyway... I'm going to play you a little bit of the, just the, I guess the album version of Wishing. Just brilliant in its simplicity. Uh, got a nice draggy guitar behind it. And of course that three note, simple, simple three note riff, which is just so ingenious that you, it's just mind boggling. Here's Wishing from A Flock of Seagulls. Wishing, I think Wishing actually, Wishing I think probably got up to 20 or 30 or something like that. It was That was one of the other top 40 hits of theirs here in the United States. But Flock of Seagulls with Wishing, your honorable mention band on PF's third favorite band. And we finally come to our final song of the evening. And this is a song by a group called The Lighthouse and the Whaler. And I forgot about these guys. And I was going through Freegal. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and just kind of seeing if there's anything new I could listen to and lo and behold I saw that this was one of the featured uh, albums and I'm like these guys are they yeah that's right these guys they are from like I said they're from Cleveland Ohio and they, I guess they released an EP in 2019 or 2020 and I was listening to it and uh, this is one of the songs that popped out of me the song is called The Wanderer and this is very much in their style and uh, it, I've listened to it a couple of times now and I'm really getting into it this may be one of my favorite songs of the year so here you go from Cleveland, Ohio is the Lighthouse and the Whaler with our song of the week on PST Reporter, The Wanderer. So long and thanks for listening.
of view, and we said we were. 